Hey there, and welcome to Silo Busting, an EPAM Continuum podcast. I'm your host, Macy Donaway. Retail and consumer goods have endured many changes in the last few years. And as we look to the future, it seems more may be ahead. First a pandemic, and now an anticipated recession? How do brands navigate such rough waters? More importantly, how do they make decisions that are strategic and long-term while also remaining nimble and responsive? The answer is not always clear. But in the recently published third installment of our Consumers Unmasked research, the data reveals an interesting portrait for what post-pandemic habits may stick or grow in prominence, what behaviors may play out over another year of change, and what's influencing consumers and their choices most. Today's guests, Michelle Grant, Director of Strategy and Insights, Retail and Consumer Goods at Salesforce, and Pierre Kremer, Senior Director, Retail and CPG of the Digital Engagement Practice, EMEA, at EPAM, break down some of these insights as well as how they interpret the landscape ahead, from loyalty to NFTs to inventory management and hyper-localization, Michelle and Pierre discuss the issues giving our retailers insomnia. Fortified by the recently released research and this duo's tips for navigating a sea of uncertainty, you'll learn to place a steady hand on the steering wheel. Enjoy. Michelle, brand loyalty, you know, remains strong for around one in four fashion shoppers. Now, how do brands maintain and grow that loyalty when consumers feel pressure to cut spending? Right. We're really in an unusual time uh, when it comes to the macroeconomic environment uh, around the world. Uh, We have inflation pressures, economic uncertainty, the war in Ukraine. Uh, So consumers are are being very cautious with their wallets. Um, And as per your research, one in four are still loyal to their brands. And we can't take that for granted. So it's really important to understand what about your brand resonates with these customers? Is it the quality of the fabrics? Is it the style? Is it the pricing? Is it the category? So really understanding what you know drives that loyalty with those customers and lean into that um, in order to to keep them loyal. And if you do see in your data that you know people are shifting their spending to different categories, um, maybe looking to different um, price points within your portfolio, you'll want to lean into that as well. So it's really important to be uh, very aware of what your customer is doing and how they interact with your brand and lean into um, those uh, pillars of strength in order to keep them loyal uh, to you. And, um, you know, as you know, we've been hearing a lot that, you know, we're maybe going into a recession, but in, in, res- in recessionary times, um, how do uh, you know, new brands or, you know, the, you know, the, the niche or brands that tend to have a slight, a slightly higher um, cost point, right? Where they're slightly more expensive, let's say, than brands that may be traditional or, um, uh, you know, legacy. 
Um, you know, so if you, if you think of an all birds, right, compared to, for example, uh, you know, a more legacy brand, those trainers, for example, tend to be slightly more expensive. How do brands like that manage to, to survive these times, knowing that often the behavior that we see is that when people tend to cut costs, is that they'll go back to, you know, a, a price point that, uh, you know, matches, um, you know, the current wallets. Right. Scale is everything. Scale and distribution um, just can give huge advantages to those large players that have been around uh, for decades. Um, In addition to just sort of uh, uh, huge brand awareness, right? So if you're a new brand going up against uh, a larger brand with decades of history, you know, robust distribution points, unaided brand awareness, it is very challenging. So you have to be extremely creative. Um, and you really need to lean into what makes your brand different. And that will start with your product. What makes your product different from what you can buy already? What sort of uh, innovations have you embedded in your product? Um, and then when it comes to, you know, you trying to get that awareness about your brand. We also see advertising costs, um, you know, rising in the digital world. Um, how do you creatively market that brand, um, both from using new or unused channels? Maybe it's streaming TV. Maybe it's out of uh, out of home as people return to uh, work and uh, traveling more. Uh, where are the sort of I guess, marketing arbitrages that you can leverage um, because they're being overlooked right now. And then having really spot on creative that catches people's attention from the visuals to the copy. So you really need to be um, really innovative across everything, but in particular when it comes to the product and then getting your message out. And, um, you know, so you, you mentioned a keyword there. So, you know, being innovated. And so with regards to innovation um, and considering then, you know, these macroeconomic times, like what, how, what do you see are the types of innovations that brands can do to uh, either, you know, acquire new customers, maintain them um, uh, that, you know, what, what have you seen that has been, uh, that has been successful so far or where is the industry going towards? Mm-hmm. I think materials will always be a key element of innovation, um, especially when it comes to sustainability. So that's where we see the industry heading. How are you cutting out your water usage in denim? How are you maybe uh, replicating leather with mushrooms? Um, this, you know, sustainability is a really important um, value to Gen Z uh, in particular. So that material innovation where you're being as um, careful about environmental resources as possible will uh, resonate with that generation in particular. The other thing is, you know, we're seeing a flight to value. So if you are, um, you know, you want the longevity of your products uh, to be front and center. Uh, We've seen a lot of uh, people, you know, really lean into sort of capsule wardrobes where you only need to buy eight items to make a full outfit, make outfits um, that'll last you a whole season. 
high quality fabrics that will last uh, um, years, timeless collections, and then in in many cases, you know, really built for resale and and retain their their value, so that if you are making that purchase, uh, you can be confident that you're going to recoup some of that price point by reselling it. Right. Um, so speaking of, um, of you know, um, materials, you know, that what you were just saying, you know, that um, we have seen in our research that, you know, shoppers are are showing, you know, a clear intent, you know, to uh, to repair, um, you know, their garments uh, to, uh, you know, upcycle more over the, you know, year over year. But and also, you know, refashion, I guess, you know, that's the that's the term. Um, what have you um, have you seen with regards to that? What is your your, your point of view on it? Yes, resale has done uh, really well during the the pandemic and beyond. Again, there's a generational shift with younger consumers who are embracing thrifting and secondhand fashion as um, as a cool fashion trend in general. In addition to the sustainability impact that it has, but we see sort of the '90s look come back. Y2Ks is is a trend right now. So getting items from from those areas in uh, consignment stores or secondhand platforms, or as is, is a really is a, a fashion trend right now, and a lot of players are leaning into that product type and the marketing style. Um, so that is that is really driving one of the drivers of of, of secondhand um, uh, clothing right now. And how, how do you see brands? you know, do who, who, you know, may lose market share because of that, uh, react to it. Uh, does it go back to your original point of, of, you know, making sure that the product, the quality is good? Um, how, how can they, you know, not necessarily stem, you know, uh, consumers, you know, buying, you know, uh, older clothes or thrifting, but how can they survive or how can they maintain, you know, their, their position in the market knowing that this trend is growing? Right. So every purchase, um, you know, it may be a substitute for a new product purchase. If someone's buying secondhand, um, we haven't really seen that happen in the market quite yet. Both new products and used products are, are growing kind of, uh, have been growing, um, sort of in tandem, but at some point there might be a substitution effect. It, I'm more interested in just sort of the the change in the closet that's happening because of secondhand. And like I said, with that, that quality aspect, you know, really leaning into that marketing messaging, it, it's really important for retailers and brands who want to grow their business uh, with young generations to offer a resale option. You want to, again, there's a lot of benefits to bringing that process in house as opposed to you know uh, people selling on Poshmark or thread up and, and linking that that transaction to a marketplace um, because it will only grow in importance as Gen Z ages and um, has more purchasing power so you really want to build an in-house resale platform where you take your products back and you either offer you know cash back or in my opinion, store credit would be better. And even to entice people with store credit, offer a higher, um, higher remuneration for that store credit because 
that keeps people buying with you directly. So if I buy a jacket, um, from REI, um, and then I trade it in for uh, some uh, store credit, then I'm going to spend that store credit at REI. And I'm not even going to think of a competitor uh, because I know I have um, you know money essentially to spend at that retailer. So it's a good loyalty play in addition to a good, um, you know, marketing um, play as well as, you know, meeting the demands of the customer, which is, which are escalating their expectations around sustainability. Now, having said that, it's, it's easier said than done, right? Um, There's a lot of (laughs) complexities in taking the product back, in uh, authenticating its quality, um, uploading individual SKUs to sell. So you really have to think about um, the investment that it takes to offer that type of program and how you're going to do it. Now, of course, you can do it in-house, but there's a lot of uh, technology providers that are, are looking at, you know, that have resale as a service, um, that have that experience to help you um, uh, build that uh, into your uh, normal storefront. Uh, but again, that's that may be a long-term you know, payoff for the investment that you're making. Yeah. And and what about actually, you know, I've seen that some, uh, you know, retailers have done this, you know, so for example, H&M, right, which you can bring in your, your, your garments and, you know, put them in the recycling um, bin. um, And then they actually can reuse the threads, you know, from those clothes to build to, uh, you know, recreate uh, a new ones. In some shops, actually, they even have the um, like a, a prototype of the machine showing actually making uh, making garments out of reused threads. Are are, are there other examples of of, of uh, stores retailers that you that you know that have been successful uh, in, in in doing that? I wish I saw more examples around uh, recycling clothing um, to make new clothes uh, in store or online. I haven't seen too many, but a really cool example that does stand out is here in Chicago where I'm based. um, Nike had a pop-up store where you could bring in any shoe, not just Nikes, and they would recycle them um, and turn the material into uh, the rubber uh, ground for a basketball court. (laughs) So I don't know the technical term there, forgive me, but they would then install these these basketball courts uh, uh, um, throughout the city. So that's a really cool, unique uh, way to recycle the materials, you know, you don't even have to turn them into new, new clothes as long as they get put into maybe, you know, cloth bags or this basketball court. You can be very creative about this. And what I find really fascinating about this Nike uh, activation was you were rewarded with points in their Nike membership for bringing your shoes in. And that's something that I've actually seen a lot pop up here in, um, 
in the U.S. with regards to beauty packaging recycling. Now, a lot of beauty uh, stores have places where you can drop off your um, your, you, your 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 packaging, your single-use plastics that are empty, um, and you get points with the loyalty program for doing that. So, I think that's a great way, um, mm-hmm. n- not only to showcase the recycling, but to really incentivize people to do it. Again, keeps you loyal, enriches your loyalty. Uh, reward system. Like there's a benefit for the company. Uh, it drives traffic to the store. You get people more engaged. Another way to earn loyalty points um, to uh, incentivize people to take the time out of their day to gather their clothes and bring them to the store for recycling. That's a great initiative, and actually a, a, a good segue into the uh, into the next uh, topic. I'd like to uh, to broach with you. So. You know, we with the pandemic, you know, we've seen a, a clear rise of online shopping. Uh, however, we know that uh, physical shopping is not dead and far from it. But how do you um, – what are good examples of, like, resilience of physical retail um, and, and the role that now it plays, you know, for hybrid shopping? So, you know – how can stores survive while still having a very successful e-commerce business and vice versa? Right. So hybrid shopping is now a, a permanent consumer behavior thanks to the pandemic. Everyone got really used to um, buying online and picking up in store or picking up curbside for safety reasons or, you know, in getting home delivery. But even that, um, had logistical challenges at the beginning of the pandemic when you know everyone was ordering online. You couldn't get a grocery delivery slot. You packages, you know, Amazon couldn't keep to its two day promise. Uh, so uh, that store really shined as a fulfillment capability, and we see um, more consumers adopting that buy online, pick up at the store, whether it's in the store or at curbside um, habit. And so consumers, you know, they're um, they're rational and they have different um, use cases for the store. Um, so in some cases, if you need it same day, maybe within the hour, um, you're going to place your order and you're going to pick it up um, on your way to work or dropping the kids off. You know, stores are well positioned Um you know, to be fulfillment centers pre-internet, right? You you had to pick the high traffic locations, and so they're they're essentially mini fulfillment centers in in mm. some cases. So you can lean into that aspect, but people like to shop in stores. Like I, I think that kind of, that message can get lost is that it is a leisure activity for some. You want it's a social activity for some. So sometimes you want to go and do the store with your friends and try things on. Um, sometimes it's more efficient to go to the store, especially with fashion, to try things on in the dressing room, to touch and feel the merchandise. So consumers are 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 you know are, are maximizing their time and using the tools that they need for the optimal shopping experience, right? If I just need a replacement um, pair of sweats, um, I'll just place the order online and either have it home delivered or go pick it up at the store because I'll be out running errands anyway. But if I want to have that true fashion experience to sort of look through, discover things, talk to store associates, then I'm going to go into the store. And it's just really important. We always talk as retailers to really 
offer the consumer what they want and that they want the multiple options now for their different shopping needs. And um, do you think that um, this can also bring, and I've seen a few a few retailers do it, but I don't think it's widespread enough, surprisingly, I, I, I must say, about hyper-localization, right? Because if you're doing the shopping online and then let's say picking up in store, you know, you figure that the data that uh, retailers may be able to gather uh, would could indicate them exactly the type of products, the assortment that they should have in their stores that clearly address better, you know, a local area. So I know that, for example, you know, we talk about Nike, but they did that, you know, their hyper local stores, H&M as well. Do you see that um, um, as something that will, uh, that will grow um, or have you seen it already uh, and it, or is it already something that that's established and I might be missing out? No, I think you're, you're right. Um, that it will grow. It's, it's difficult to do right. Um, to have hyper localized assortment, um, especially during like the pandemic when we've had so many merchandising shifts, right. Everyone sort of, you know, we stocked up on a leisure athleisure wear, and now we're going back out. So the models to localize that assortment probably aren't as accurate as they were um, pre-pandemic when they had normal consumer data to to rely on. But yes, hyper uh, local assortment is going to be critical for those stores, especially as um, people shift their locations. Right? If right. what we're seeing is fewer people are working downtown. Um, and so you open your local store in a strip mall here in the U S um, what kind of assortment does that neighborhood need? It'll be critical. And the other piece of that is not only having the assortment right to meet the needs of the consumer is, you know, with these sort of buy online, pick up in store, buy online, ship from store um, capabilities, you need to have the inventory visibility to know how much to show is available so that when I walk into the store without researching or pre-planning my purchase, I will find what I need in the size that I need um, versus, you know, if you put 100% visibility online, um Again, fashion may not be as fast moving as like consumer goods, so it may not be as big of a problem. But if you put too much availability online, then people, you know, who walk in the store just to browse and shop may not find anything available because it's all been reserved for uh, pickup orders. So inventory management is always critical, but it's become even more critical now because of the different functions that the store has and the fact that it's got to be localized to probably, um, you know, a, a much smaller radius. Right. And that's the, and, 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 and that also, you know, corroborated by the, by, you know, our, our, our consumers on mass research, right. Is that roughly, if you think of it, you know, like, 76% you know, of, of consumers pretty much said that they will continue shopping both online and in-store um, and that you know, trying, experimenting, you, having the brand experience in-store is, um, is, is still a value and a complement to the experience that they have online. So um, uh, and, 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 and a, a quick other point um, with regards, in, in this case, more to innovation and, you know, the, we've all... Uh, you know, it's it's at least for us in uh, in the industry, we 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 keep on hearing, you know, about you know Web three, the metaverse. Um, what's your take on it? Uh, and you know, 
the take of, of retailers that you that you may have encountered or you know uh, um, clients that you speak to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Web three can be uh, a very uh, divisive topic. Uh, so the way I like to break it down is. Um, is sort of blockchain versus non-blockchain. Um, and not a non-blockchain technology would be the gaming platforms. Um, so um, Minecraft, Roblox, Fortnite, um, those are Animal Crossing. Those are where younger generations are spending a lot of their time um, and having these interactive experiences and these gaming experiences. So I think that's an important trend to keep an eye on, but it really depends on your customer. So if you are a teen retailer in fashion, these are critical points that you need to be uh, uh, in. Um, And it's kind of past the the test and learn phase. Um, That's just where Gen Z is. And you need to have activations there. And we've seen you know, sort of, um, you know, for non-blockchain, you know, like Adidas and Nike, they've set up games within Roblox. Um, they, I've seen Puma actually have a product collaboration or product inspiration from Animal Crossing. So using the colors and the logos from Animal Crossing on their, on their actual in a product uh, collection to sell um, without even having uh, an experience in the game itself. So understanding that if you're reaching out to a younger consumer, this is part of their culture. So you either need to be playing on it or merchandising with it or collaborating uh, with those um, entities uh, in order to reach that consumer. Now, if you're targeting an older generation like myself, uh, you don't necessarily need to be paying too much attention to that because that's just not where your, your consumer is. Um, but when it comes to blockchain sort of initiatives with an NFT or your own company token, that is, uh, you know, that is still a younger, based on our research is still, you know, obviously has greater interest among younger generations, but there is an older luxury cohort that is really into crypto and collecting NFTs and understanding the space and be belonging in communities uh, that are united by, uh, by NFTs. So I do think it's important to, you know, before you take the leap, because you really do need to have the skills for community management, you need right. to have a long-term plan because these things last forever on the blockchain. You can do some test and learn um, initiatives with some NFT drops just to to see if there's demand from your customer base um, to 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 then fully dive in. And obviously, Adidas and Nike really have. Uh, very long-term plans in, in in crypto. We see a lot of the luxury fashion players um, as well uh, have like Gucci really, really have a, a core strategy um, for the long-term to, to play in that space. So, you know, it just boils down to who's your customer, what are they interested in and test and learn where you can. And, uh, um, and, and quick question that I, um, and, and this, and, uh, you know, I think would be for, you know, the, People listen to us, but also, you know, myself, I have a question on this is why uh, specifically the luxury custom uh, um, uh, brands are focusing so much on 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 Web3, you know, from you mentioned Gucci, but there are, you know, so, so many others that are that, that are doing it as well. 
I, I, well, one, I think it's what their customers are interested in. Um, so a lot of, uh, wealthy people, um, you know, in the technology sector obviously have been in following cryptocurrencies for quite some time and it's become part of the culture and luxury is all about, you know, being part of that culture, reflecting it back uh, to the consumers, catering to those tastes. So again, it's it's where their customers are. Um, and then the other thing is that by buying an NFT, um, the very basic thing is 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 a loyalty play, uh, right? So if I bought um, uh, a Gucci NFT, I am invested in seeing that NFT sort of rise in value. So I will, you know, do things for the community to ensure that the value of the NFT increases in case one day I want to sell it. Um, But it's also a great way that NFT unlocks exclusive product, exclusive experiences. Um, I think Prada's um, NFT, uh, if you bought it, you got a front row seat to the fashion show. So instead of having a traditional loyalty program that a luxury player has always shied away from because it's, um, it's not luxury. It's not a luxury experience, right? If you're earning points and redeeming it, 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 in their eyes, it, it probably damages the brand, right? Like we don't need a luxury. We don't need a loyalty program to keep you loyal, but this is an interesting way to do that um, without devaluing the brand. Um, and so I think, community, right. It's like you're yes. part of a community. You're entering like our world and um, which is, uh, and, and also allows great interaction between other members. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, so you see Prada, Gucci, um, Puma just uh, launched one. They all have Discord communities um, so that you can interact with the brand. And Gucci does a really good job in their Discord because they, they share, <clears throat> they have um, they have places where they share their content, right? It's also a great way to market uh, to your customers without having to pay for it. Uh, so they're dropping the podcast interviews that their creative director is doing, the interviews that he's doing, you know, important press releases from Gucci. So it's a great way to talk directly to your customers without having to, you know, pay a, a, a Google or a Facebook, you know, toll essentially to reach them. Right. Right. Oh, that's a great point. Um, so, you know, to close the um, you know this uh, this podcast, I um, wanted to ask you, what are you know the if you're a fashion brand retailer, what are your top tips? The the, the main things that you would like you know, that that they should take away. Yes, I think you know we're entering this era of um, a lot of uncertainty around consumer behavior. So, uh, operational excellence is going to be critical. Um, that means, as we talked about, inventory management. Uh, uh, you know, purchasing appropriately, really getting the fundamentals right, um, because we just don't know what the the consumer is going to do. And related to that is agility. Um, we had to be agile during the pandemic and make really uh, quick decisions, quick investments, get things up and running, maybe not at um, as perfect as we'd like, but it was just necessary to do it. Um, and again, 
the consumer is changing still rapidly because of all of the inflation issues that we're having. So really monitoring it and being able to move quickly to make decisions is going to be is, is another tip that, w- that I would have. Um, so that wasn't three, Pierre. I, I was hoping that maybe you could, you could fill in the third. What do you, what do you think? What would you add? Um, well, I agree with, uh, I agree with all of you. What, what, one thing I would say is that as, as times of, ch- uh, are, are changing, um, resilience is, is, is key. And, and to do so, I think that, you know, retailers and fashion brands have to have clarity and their strategy and what is it that they want to do moving forward. Um, and if, uh, and in these times also, um, the ability, uh, you know, going to the point of being agile, right, is test, test little, you know, um, your, your, your strategies, um, um, you know, before, um, you know, taking a, a, a big leap, that, that, that would be, uh, that would be mine. I agree. Yes. That, um, yeah. And, and that test and then being open to failing and, and moving on to test something new, um, because everything is always, always evolving and you really don't know if it'll work until you try it. Thank you to Michelle and Pierre for bringing the changing retail environment to life in this lively discussion. For more insights into spending habits and behaviors in a world disrupted by the pandemic, download the full Consumers Unmasked report at epam.com. This has been Silo Busting, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Why do we do this? Because real opportunities aren't siloed.